it was the time when the Beatles first came around. It was the first time where pop music was in, had a sort of seal of seriousness about it, rather yes. than the solo singers with Bill Cream, you know, which was before the Beatles. It sort of added a sort of seriousness to the yeah. art of popular music. And that's what the Beatles, if any, the Beatles that did anything that was quite serious. They made it respectable. Yes. They sort of made it animals. What Were you writing songs at that time? Yourself? Well, you, Barry was yeah. first, then Robin. But, well, then we, we probably have the, the, uh, the track record. Uh, that beats them all. We had about 13 flop singles in a row. Really? In which Australia. we haven't beaten yet, folks. You never know your luck. No, this, is when we lived in <laughs> this is when we lived in Australia. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. we had a recording contract with uh, well, they called it that. a big record company that had very little time for children. And because we didn't understand as children that there wasn't really a market out there in the teenage market for records, you know, no matter how good the songs may have been. Hello and welcome back to Words the Bee Gees podcast. I'm Cristiano. And I'm Stuart. And we're here today for the first episode in our exploration of the Bee Gees music during their time in Australia in the early to mid-1960s. Yes, so those people that thought we were were coming to Mr Natural, I'm sorry, but... uh, Yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) What we're going to do, as Chris said, we're going to go through the Australian years um, from the beginning to 66. There is so much material... It does vary in quality, from the really good stuff to quite ordinary and bizarre. We'll cover them as as we go through it. And then there's the stomp. Uh, Oh, there's the stomp, yeah. Chris has been practising that one. It's a good job we're not not on YouTube. (laughs) And we're only voice only. So this episode, we'll be covering the period from 1959 through to 1964. I'll stop you there, Chris. There is one song. Yep that I found that was supposedly written in 1956. It's a song called Turtle Dove, which I think he it's mentioned, but I don't think it was completed. And uh, so we're, we're going to talk really for sort of 58, 59 onwards. Whenever we talk about albums, one of the first questions that I'll ask you is, when did you first hear the album? So for this episode, I will ask you, when did you first become acquainted or familiar with the Bee Gees Australian music. I was in HMV and there was this picture of the Bee Gees from 1978. I didn't know what this album was and I and I flipped it over and looked at the back and there's all these weird song titles that I'd never even heard of. And it was only like 3.99 or something. It was really cheap. So I thought, oh, I'll give it, I'll go and buy it and brought it home. And um, it wasn't quite what I expected. It was... Uh, Take it back. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you got little chipmunks at the beginning and, and it, it was it was quite bizarre. But within that, there was some good, good stuff. But it was one I never really played. And it wasn't until 98, 99, that this double album, Brilliant From Birth, come out, that I brought that. And that's supposed to contain everything. And there was also some tracks that they found in 1983 that were used for the some of the shows at the time so i think the Bee Gees just sang to backing tracks yeah but um as we go through it we'll, we'll pick and pull some of these songs and and have a listen some might be a bit quicker than others and you've often said before about when you go through the Bee Gees music quite often it's you're marathoning all of their albums in the car would you always just start with Bee Gees first would you ever yeah i would do i think i did a little best of yeah, CD that I used, that I made my own CD and then sort of started off with that. I I, were, I wasn't brave enough to go through a <laughs> hundred, two hundred recordings before I got to sixty-seven. Yeah. So I just tend to do my favourites, which tended to be towards you know a lot of stuff from sixty-six. Saying that, 
there are one or two good recordings, some good songs, and you can see the progression in Barry's songwriting as we go through it. That is the main thread that I would like to unravel as we progress through these episodes. We've just come off the back of Life in a Tin Can and A Kick in the Head, where we've been trying to unpick these supposed concepts that are running across both of those albums. We don't have any of that here. These are just very simple recordings that are very much of their time. But as you said, in going from it from 19, even from 1959 onwards through to 1966, we, we definitely are going to see a progression. And, and a go- quick progression. Oh, yeah. And my main thing is that Barry was very influenced by artists of the time as well. Yeah. And how he could dovetail his, his compositions to fit is fantastic. Quite a few of these songs, I think, could have been sent over to the UK definitely during the peak of Merseybeat. And there's quite a few of these would have slotted in and I'm sure they would have been hits. I don't, it's a shame they never sort of reached the UK in time. I think the Beatles' first hit in in Australia was was mid-63 with, I think for me to you got to number three. So they missed out on Love Me Do and Please Please Me. So I, I assume by the time the Bee Gees got to hear this sort of stuff and then by the time Barry starts composing and working around it, it, it was already in, in the big time here. I found a quotation from Barry going on from what you said. And he says, reflecting on the period around 1964, people were playing our records and the Beatles and found that we sounded very similar. So we were banned right off the air. If Australia gets someone good from overseas, they'd rather push their own artists. And I think that simple fact that they would rather push their own artists really shows in this music that we'll be covering. Because it seems like by the time we get to 1965 and some of the songs that we're going to be talking about in 65 sound like they should have been released back in 1960. They're just so... Australia just seemed to be so far behind the mark in terms of what was happening worldwide. I think it's so fascinating and I'm going to be making quite a lot of references as we progress through the Australian music of comparing Bee Gees music to that of the Beatles. There's quite a lot of songs and a lot is an understatement where of songs where I could easily just say, oh yeah, this song sounds like this Beatles equivalent. Yeah. It is fascinating that through doing this, we're getting a good insight as to not just what the Bee Gees were doing in Australia, but what Australia was like in terms of its music scene. And you've also got to feel a bit sorry for them because obviously we're talking 60 when Twins were 10 and Barry was 13, 14. They were seen as child stars over there and they used to do little... I think comedy sketches and I think quite a lot you can see on YouTube. So for them to be released in singles as child stars, then suddenly to mature, I do feel the reason why quite a lot of these songs weren't hits is because people still saw them as, as children and they didn't quite know again, like we took funny enough, what we talked in I said in about seventy three, who their audience was. We got the same thing again in sixty three. Sixty three, sixty four who was their audience? Because one minute they're doing a little sketch, then they're doing trying to write a, a, a commercial song. So I'm wondering if they'd suddenly appeared in 1964 with these songs, whether the songs would have done better because they would have been just perceived then as a Three Brothers Harmony group. So yeah. with other podcasts, what we've done, we've gone through each album and dissected it and, and the material that surrounds that. Because there was no album um, until 65 what we thought we'd do we'll go through this we've got Joseph's um, notes and things and it chronicles the year the songs were composed 
So what we're going to go by that. So everything in 1960, 62, 63, etc. We're going to go go through that in order. And then when we come to the album, we will then discuss it and take it from there. Sounds good to me. I would just like to read out some messages from listeners that we received in anticipation for our journey through the Australian material. Okay, yeah. On Twitter, Leonie Mary says, I'm so glad to see you talk about the Australian years from 1958 to 1967 that was so important to the story, success and creation of the Bee Gees. These years developed their songwriting ability, recording skills and live show talent. And then on Instagram... Elsa Reds says, I'm really excited that you're going to dive into this part of their career. The early years do have some gems too, and their talents are clear to see already. It's also interesting to see in terms of their development as artists and songwriters over the years, and where they started out is definitely important to take a look at to see the path that they walked and how their success grew. I can't wait to hear your thoughts and analysis. Well, with that in mind, then, shall we delve into the early 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 stuff um i did mention turtle dove when did you start writing songs how old were you well barry was the first one uh yeah he was about uh, eight or nine i think i was about nine years old yeah when i came up with what might be the first song we were ever to do and that was called turtle dove but i have no actual memory of it i don't believe it. Mm. it's true i have I no bet, memory. i bet you do if you really i have no no i i promise you i haven't I, I wish i could so i could sing it to myself every now and again in the shower oh, yeah. there was also a song in 1958 called Hopscotch Polka. Now, this one was recalled by a friend in Manchester. There's no record or anything on that one. And again, with the third song, I've got another one from 1959 called The Echo of Your Love. And then the first song we've got was a song called 20 Miles to Blue Land. This was composed in 1959. And we have a tiny, tiny, tiny clip of this one. And this was when the Bee Gees appeared on... UK TV show This Is Your Life from 1991. When Bill Gates came onto This Is Your Life, he actually presented Barry with the original acetate. So I believe that's now hanging up in his house in Miami. I can't honestly be critical of these songs, not only because there's only 30 second snippets of each, but equally. 1959, so... Well, they are children, aren't they? They are. So Barry is 13 and the twins are just 10 years old. I think back to what I was doing at that age. Was it anywhere near as prolific or as productive as this? Probably not. So I've got nothing but admiration that they were even able to record, sing and compose these songs. I mean, what Barry must have been doing, you know, I mean, most children are out doing stuff and he's got time to sit and write these these songs that must have come to him at, at such an early age. We spoke excessively in the early podcasts about Bill Shepherd. I think the equivalent for that for Australia is Hugh Gibb, their father, who acts as a, a, a mentor, a mediator, a publicist for the Bee Gees. He, he did everything that he could for his children to get them out there and, and to get them to stardom. Yeah, because they moved into Australia and was it 58 they emigrated, wasn't they? Yeah. But, but isn't Leslie older than Barry? So she could have been buying records, which Barry could have been listening to as well. Sort of late 50s, you had the Everly Brothers, that, that their songs were heavily harmonised. That's what they were known for. Everything they did was had harmony to it. And we'll hear a lot of the Everly Brothers' oh, definitely. influence in a lot of these compositions. 
So I'm wondering whether they were one of Les's favourite groups. And again, Barry was able to draw all the influences that he needed from it. He just absorbs what's around him and then reinterprets it as something that resembles what he was inspired by, but it equally is, is very much his own. Okay, Barry's 13 years old here, but already I can hear glimpses of what's to come. And the next song we've got is from 1960, and that's called Let Me Love You. Let me love you, I'll never let you go. Let me love you, because I need you so. Let me love you, nobody else will do. Now, they actually sang this on one of their early TV performances. And again, they did it in 1991. I think it was Nicky Campbell, I think, on Radio 1. Yeah, Yeah. well, we were very, very young, of course. How old? About eight years old. Eight years old. And we went in and cut some songs on a a normal tape recorder for him to play on the air during his radio programme. And that was actually the first airplay we ever received on anything we ever wrote. Yeah, so that was called Let Me Love You. That's so you were really like yeah. three little Jimmy Osmonds, you know? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, yeah. no, nothing like Jimmy. <laughs> but I'll tell you what would be delightful, uh, but before we hear something on record uh, yeah, from yeah. after you went to Britain, would be to hear maybe a, a snatch of some of those early songs. Yeah, those, absolutely. Those, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Those undiscovered yeah. masterpieces. Those undiscovered. In the archives yeah, of our brain. <laughs> <laughs> so this is called Let Me Love You. Have you any thoughts on this one? Very similar to 20 Master Blue Land. It's quite an innocent little tune. But again, I'm hearing glimpses of already quite a catchy commercial song. And I think that, as you said, you know, if, if you were to transpose this to the UK in a different time frame, could have done something. I've got it sort of a bit Buddy Holly-ish. But it, I tell you what it did remind me of. Paul McCartney's first song. I lost my little girl. It is. And it's got the similar sort of innocence that he had with his. And it's funny, actually, because he actually released that for the first time in 1991 as well, didn't he? For Unplugged. Yeah. But I thought that's got the same, you know, nice little innocent that you, a young writer would probably, probably do. Well, I woke up late this morning. My head was I've got two more songs from 1960. I've got a song called Time Is Passing By. Yeah. Which again, there's no record, but they did perform this again on uh, TV. And I think it's doing the rounds on YouTube. But it was originally on, a, a, I think it was something like Bandstand or some show in America, in Australia from 1960. 
it's of its time, isn't it? And, and it? and it is what it is. But on YouTube, there's an Italian tribute band who play it live. It gets the crowd going. So maybe this is the earliest uh, um, TV footage of the Bee Gees and mainly the only version we've heard by a non-Bee Gees doing a non-recorded song. And then finally, we've got one other song, and this is called Underneath the Starlight of Love, again written in 60. But this was released by Cold Joy in 1963 as a B-side. I'll read a passage from the Bee Gees Decades 1960s book, which will shed some light on Underneath the Starlight of Love. Okay. Cole Joy recorded one of the very first songs he'd heard Barry play the previous year in the church hall on the Gold Coast. Cole's version of Barry's Underneath the Starlight of Love, which was released as the B-side to his single Put Him Down, gave him the distinction of being the first ever artist to cover a Barry Gibb song. Oh, okay. So... Quite a notable distinction. I'd be very proud if I was the, if I held that title. Yeah. I wonder if he told people that it was written by a 13 year old. Yeah, that's actually true. I do wonder what people who heard this on the radio and brought the single, they might have known or seen the name Barry Gibb or B Gibb, but would they have known who it was and how young this person was? Yeah. Or have any idea at all as to what this person would go on to? So the single that Underneath the Starlight of Love was the B-side to managed to peak at number 31, but this was in the state chart for Victoria. Well, that would have brought a bit of revenue in, wouldn't it? Well, I'm not sure how much, um, how many royalties the, the brothers actually managed to retrieve. And that's part of the reason why this material is so, everything's sort of here, there and everywhere. There's There's never really been, apart from Brilliant From Birth, a definitive release of all of this material. When I spoke to Joseph, we was talking to him, wasn't I, about the Assault on the, on the Vaults, which was a CD of all stuff that they gave away. And as, we, as we'll find out here, and as, as Joseph said, there's plenty of material for another, another CD, but, you know, he said, didn't he, that um, it probably didn't sell that well. But that was in 98, and I'm, I'm thinking, well... It was just a little time, bit before. Yeah, for collections, and you got, you know, all the birth of the internet and stuff, and, you know, people, I think, would pay to hear clear versions of these songs. And oh, yeah. Especially, with, with, you know, it's it's got all that association with the brothers, you know, and you see stuff that was released, and you think, you know, I see in my record collector, albums get released, and I thought, well, I've never even heard of that. But mm. obviously, they've been given box sets and stuff like that, so... I think there is room for an, an, an extra volume of this. And that's where sources like YouTube really come into their own. It's such an invaluable resource for us, for our research and for, for putting this podcast together, to be able to find all of these different things that even back in 98... You, could, you couldn't get hold of. Yeah, and, and you say about having these deluxe sets for albums that you've never heard of. 
I think there are certain record labels that really could do justice to these sort of releases. I think quite an appropriate one, you could have Cherry Red Records. Oh, that's true, yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but they're doing box sets for, for artists like... Did they do the Mike McGear one? And Anthony ago? Phillips, Mike McGear, Tony yeah. Banks, quite obscure artists, but they're still giving them these box sets. And the Bee Gees name, I think if you were, if you were to attach the Bee Gees name to anything, it's going to be quite a big yeah. draw. But no, it, it, it would definitely warrant a second volume of this Australian stuff. As the Bee Gees said themselves, time is passing by. As we don't have any known recordings for 1961 or 62, so that brings us to 1963. In January of 1963, the Bee Gees performed at a Chubby Checker concert in Sydney, and this resulted in the brothers getting a recording contract with Festival Records. And their first recording session, which was held around February of 63, at Festival Studios in Sydney, produced two songs, and these songs would form their first single, which was released on the 22nd of March. And this was The Battle of the Blue and Grey, backed with The Three Kisses of Love. Now it's gone, gone, gone. Those years have passed away. It's gone, gone, gone. There's truth in what I say. It's gone, gone, gone. There's nothing more to say. But I'd do anything if I could do it all again. I've got a quotation from Robin, and he says, We recorded our first flop, which was called The Battle of the Blue and the Grey. That sounds like Robin. (laughs) It it does. He's, He's not very complimentary here. And it's based on the old story of the American Civil War. So I think that the the fast-paced skiffle rhythm of this song really suits Barry's country-inflected voice. Now, as I said before about we hearing glimpses of what Barry's going to go on to do, already we're hearing that country, that love of country music start to emerge. Yeah. Even though they're, they're, they're not really like a country group, they do... It, that is influenced, isn't it? it was, already in 63 they are, aren't they? I mean, bear in mind we've got Barry, who's 16 at the time of this, and... And 13-year-old twins. I think Barry already... I know it sounds silly, but Barry already sounds like Barry. Yeah. Not so much the twins, but definitely he does. Have you listened, really listened to the lyrics of this song? Because no. I know it's a really upbeat and, and a very chirpy little tune, but have you actually listened to what the lyrics no. are, are saying? So I'll read some out. I picked a soldier dressed in blue and filled him full of lead. I fixed my bayonet to my gun and really mowed them down. It's really graphic and disturbing yeah. for a 16-year-old. And that shows a sort of level of maturity. But the way that they're able to take a subject matter like that and then couple it with the chorus, it's gone, 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 which is, you know, very upbeat, very, yeah. very happy-go-lucky. I picked a soldier dressed in blue and filled him full of lead. I picked out six more soldiers there sitting on a mound. I fixed my brain to my gun and really mowed him down. Now it's gone, gone, gone. Those years have passed away. It's gone, gone, gone. There's truth in what I say. It's gone, gone, gone. There's nothing more to 
all the same But I'd do anything if I could do it all again But I'd do anything if I could do it all Yeah, I was listening to it and I thought, am, am I really hearing them saying that they're mowing people down and fixing bayonets to their rifles? It's got nothing to do with gardening, is it? <laughs> do, do you know how this song, this single performed? As Robin said, it, it was it was a, uh, um, a large flop. With that one, we'll go on to the B-side, which was the Three Kisses of Love. I really like this one. Now, I'm going to say I much prefer this to the A-side. Yeah. This, again, goes back to what I said about sounding like the Everly Brothers. Already, I've, I've mentioned this on a few podcasts, but this is one of Barry's first songs that I can honestly say sounds like it was written by somebody else years ago. Yeah, it's that thing, again, of, of where you're hearing one of their songs, even if it's the first time you've ever heard it, in the back of your head you're thinking, but this sounds like I've known this all my life. On this one, Three Kisses of Love, I think this one is got that Adam Faith sound. Yeah, I think it was Adam Faith's song, What Do You Want? It's that, the guitar plucking. I quite enjoy playing this one on guitar. It's, it, it, the verse is it's just four chords. It's uh, G, E minor, A minor, D major. It's a really fun little song to play. Will you listen to it? Just see if you can hear, the, see if I'm right, and see if the two are quite similar. Okay. What do you want if you don't want money? What do you want if you don't want gold? Say what you want and I'll give it you darling. Wish you wanted my love, baby. What do you want if you don't want Herman? What do you want if you don't want bells? Say what you want and I'll give it you darling. Wish you wanted my love, baby. And it also reminds me of one of the first singles I had brought for me was by Herman's Hermits called Silhouettes, which was about 65, 66. And it's quite funny actually that Herman's Hermits originate from Manchester, where the Bee Gees come from as well. Silhouette, was that a Hermit's composition? No, I think originally the song's from a few years earlier. But I wonder why they decide to go with Three Kisses as the B-side, because it definitely, to me, it's the stronger of the two oh, songs. Oh, yeah, easily. To me, this is their best song of 1963. And I think that already, 
I know you said about you can hear Barry. I think on this one, I can really start to hear Robin and Morris with their harmony work. I think shines through on this. Although this A-side, B-side single didn't really do much to the charts, Robin recalled that it didn't matter much to us. We just wanted to see our name on a record. We didn't care if it was a hit or not. Which I, I can imagine is true. You know, it's the excitement of having... Yeah, well, I suppose at 13, that's what you, you just want, isn't it? You know, we're, we're on a single with, with yeah. my name's on... Oh, Barry's name's on there. <laughs> it was just the prestige of having a song, wasn't it? What was the first record you, you ever made? Do you remember? <clears throat> Yeah, hang on, yes. hang on. Yeah. <laughs> What's this guitar doing here, Bob? <laughs> 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 this is my shit, isn't it? guitars here. Now this is completely unjust. This is... <laughs> it is. It is. Well, we we don't do this normally. We don't actually sort of spontaneously sing it. We, you know, we have not rehearsed this song. Okay. Is it? What are you doing? Three kisses. Right. This um, is the first song we ever recorded. It goes way back, folks. So the you don't really want to hear this, but we'll sing it anyway, right? Remember, try and visualise three little kids. <laughs> I know it's very easy. Kiss me once, oh yeah, baby. Kiss me twice, oh yeah, crazy. Kiss me three times, the three kisses of love. Oh yeah. Beatles influence. Morning news. Watch the hands. Yes, yeah. right. That's all right. I don't think you want to hear anymore. No, no, I don't think you do. <laughs> You can really tell how good the song is when, when you hear the version from 81, can't you? Yeah, when they perform it live yeah. on the Parkinson show. You've got the strength of the composition quite easy. Even though Barry wants to give up, it, it's, it's good. And you still have my little golden band on your hand. Does my little band of gold mean nothing to you? To me it meant the world, but you tore my world apart. Don't even be alone with my broken On June the 6th, 1963, they appeared on Bandstand TV programme and they perform Please Please Me and a song that I've never heard of called Little Band of Gold. Watching those performances on YouTube, you can see how enthused, especially Robin is, by Please Please Me. Oh, you yeah. You can tell how excited he is to be singing songs like that. He likes his finger clicks, doesn't he? Yeah, and when they're saying, come on, come on, he's really trying to encourage yeah. like, encourage the, the viewer in. So y- you can see that. He looks the most showman out of three of them. Yeah, he does, yeah, with his BG badge. <laughs> the following month, in July, the Bee Gees released their second single... This first side is called Timber, and this is backed with a song called Take Hold of That Star. And as the first single, these tracks were both composed by Barry. When I first saw you standing there, you set my heart a reeling. Baby, you gave me such a feeling. My heart cries timber, 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 timber. Timber, baby, cause I'm a falling for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it happens every time. I look in your eyes, baby, it's paradise. My heart cries timber, 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 timber. Timber, baby, cause I'm a falling for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I wish that you were mine to forever and ever. Without you, darling, I just can't sleep. I'm only happy when I work together. I, I thought before we have our thoughts on this song, 
I found an article from Classic Rock and what they've done, they've picked their top 10 songs from 1963 to 73. Timber, believe it or not, comes in at number 10. Well, okay. Number nine is Spicks and Specks. Number eight is If Only I Had Something on My Mind. Number seven is New York Mining Disaster. Number six, I Started a Joke. And number five is I've Got to Get a Message to You. Four is Lonely Days. Three is To Love Somebody. Two is Massachusetts. And number one is, what do you think? How Can You Mend a Broken yeah, Heart? I've got it. Yeah, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? Tim Burton. Tim Burton. I haven't put this in my top ten Australian songs. <laughs> better than Odessa. Better yeah. than Greatest Man in the World. Mm. Better than Israel. I, I know it's everybody's got their own personal opinion, but <laughs> that is certainly very different. Well, it's a good job that Robin wasn't writing that classic rock uh, article because he said... We went back into the studio and cut our second single, which did exactly what the title suggested, Timber. <laughs> well, I've got it. My first thing on, on my notes is, well, that was fast. It would have sounded better, slightly slowed down and probably stretched out a little bit from its, what was it, about 140, 150-ish? Listening to that, can you hear anything that it could lead to? I mean, do you think it's an early version of... Well, it's got that, would you say, Mersey Beats? Yeah. Sort of, that... Clearly, I think if you've got influences like Please Please Me, that that's immediately come in. Is it sort of a shouty like I.O. I.O. or...? Yeah, actually, it could be. I don't think it can be understated that you you might be a skilled writer and that you can write a a big 10-minute epic suite like Odessa, but actually one of the hardest things to do is to write a really good pop song in a really short sort of concise and for one minute's 40 it says everything that it has to say and it's exactly the same with three kisses of love and even battle of the blue and gray and all of these songs i think that's the thing about the australian material if there's a song that you dislike and you haven't got to wait long have you in less than two minutes it's, it's finished equally there are some songs that i really like and only last a couple of minutes that could last longer I know you're not really a lyrics person but have you looked much into the lyrics for timber no <laughs> But it's quite a clever use of um, Timber, what they've done. Timber Baby, because I'm falling for you. Oh, right. Oh, I didn't twig that. (laughs) (laughs) So I won't give this song too much stick. (laughs) It's an improvement on the Battle of the Blue and Grey, but I wouldn't say it's an improvement on Three Kisses of Love. I agree. Well, maybe I prefer Battle of the Blue and Grey because it's from a really interesting perspective of a historical perspective and of somebody looking back to their youth. It still amazes me that that came from the mind of a 16-year-old. Yeah, and then again, when you switch to the B-side, a bit like the previous single, you're going to a sort of a ballad-type song, and that one's called Take Hold of That Star. Take hold of that star I give to you And tell me I really like the lounge sort of laid back feel of this song with the piano and it, and it's much more stripped back 
which I really like. What I like about this one, the harmonies, you're already starting to evolve. And, and there's a bridge on this one as well, where I think Barry does a good vocal. Yep. I'll Give You The Moon, that part of the song I think is really good. And also, I'm sure that's Barry playing guitar on this. It sounds good. Again, th- this song quite easily could have been on, like, Grease soundtrack. Do you think? Yeah. Because, I mean, that was sort of 50-something or other. It's got that It's got that feel of it. I get the impression it's sort of a loungy style song. We do hear Barry develop. You get things like More and More with Diana Ross. Yeah. I'd give you the moon Or the sun Or the starlight With a love so true And if it rains I'll give you a rainbow too a passage in the ultimate biography that really neatly summarized this song and they said the evident maturity of barry's full vocal during the solo bridge section belies the fact that he's still only 16 years of age which i think this is such an amazing composition i really do like this one and it quite easily could have been sung by anybody couldn't it male or female I'm, I'm glad it was Barry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. With some of the singers that they give these compositions to, I'm, I'm glad it's Barry. La, 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 as I love you. And then in August, there was a song called I'd Like to Leave If I May, which was released by somebody called Lonnie Lee and the Lehman. Now, according to Joseph's notes, Barry was in the studio advising Lonnie and the group how he envisioned the song to sound like because it was probably the first real rock and roll recording of a Barry Gibb song. The A-side, if anybody's interested, is called Acres of Everything But Love. Um, I'll be going straight to listen to that. as I say, we're still in 63. I just find it quite difficult to get past these type of singers. Lonnie's voice to me is, is quite reminiscent here of Ringo Starr. don't know if you found the same thing. OK singers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, OK singers. Yeah. yeah, and I'm not sure whether this is to do with the singer's voice, whether it's to do with the genre of the song or the lyrics or just the recording, but I think this sounds 
more dated than Three Kisses of Love or Timber. Yeah, I mean, I, I find sometimes it's the backing and everything. It's just so of its time, isn't it? Yeah. Looking at uh, in the Decades book, it's got... Lee was looking for new songs to record, particularly homegrown material, and was given a tape of several Barry's, of Barry's songs. Lee was impressed by the demo. Pity we don't get to hear that one. Noting Barry's unusual guitar sound and, most of all, the exceptional voice. Lee recalled, even then, you could see he was destined for great things. For me, the most interesting thing about this song is at 2 minutes 15, and the song... Goes to end. two minutes fifteen. <laughs> <It's two> minutes. <laughs> the best part is that it ends. But towards two minutes fifteen, the song goes into quite an unresolved sounding chord, and and it ends on that instead. When oh, I'd okay. like to leave if I and on the word May, the song twists and just goes out in a slightly different way. It's something a little bit different. It made my ears prick up, and then the song ends, and I'm I'm not too fussed. I'd like to leave if I. And then two months down the line in October, we get an A and a B side written by Barry for a singer called Tony Brady. The A side is called Let's Stomp, Australian Way. And the B side is called Lucky Me. Now, which one should we start with? Let's go for the stomp. Lucky us. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's doing it. Stomp Australia way. Let's stomp Australia way. That's a lot there. So I'll start by reading out an ABC News report from 1963, and it reads, Critics of the Stomp say it is weird. Undignified, more like a corroboree than a conventional dance. And the stomp is in trouble. At least two municipal councils, one in Sydney and the other in South Australia, have put their foot down. One reason is the possible damage to dance floors. But the stomp is still the craze. I suppose you had America the twist yeah. and thing, so we've gone from the twist to the stomp. Do you know much else about it? Not a clue. Not a clue. I've seen a few videos of it. It's quite a strange, frenetic dance. Very much of its time. And um, this is probably the most dated of all the songs that we'll be covering. Yeah, it's probably one of my least favourites so far. Mm -hmm. In Joseph's notes, it's got that uh, Tony Brady was known as the Australian Frank Sinatra for his appearance and vocal style. The only interesting thing about this song to me is that it changes key midway through, and that's about all I have to say about this one. It's it's of its time. I can't be too critical of it for that reason. It sounds. Do you think it's a song written to order? Yeah, I think it's one of these songs that first noticeable song there's a stomp so Barry writes a song we don't have it but do you know if there's a Barry recording that exists I don't think there is I've not seen any demos for any of these songs that he's gave away particularly between when we start this to 65 
So with that, we'll quickly swift over to the B-side, Lucky Me, Lucky Us. Right, this is a mild improvement over Let's Stomp, and I think mild is the operative word. The high-pitched harmonies in the background, I find, are a staple of a lot of early 60s recordings. And I think it's a shame that these harmonies weren't provided by yeah. brothers. Because they do, they do appear, actually. I've got a list I'll go through of, of quite a few songs that they, they appear as backing vocalists. Songs by Johnny Devlin and That's it. other artists. That's it. Yes, it's, it's interesting that they weren't providing all of them for the songs that they were writing. Yeah, you mentioned Johnny Devlin. They appear, and one of his and his is called Stomp the Tumbarumba. You've been listening to that one a lot. <laughs> uh, I don't think I've ever given it a spin, to be honest with you. Probably right. stomp out the room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tony Brady recalls that there's a song called It's a Surfing World. This was for a commercial, presumably for Surfing World magazine. He thinks, though, that somebody else sang it, possibly Brian Davis, but Brian doesn't re- recall singing it at all. So for November 63, we go from the stomp to surfing, and we've got a song which was a B-side given to a singer called Nolene Batley, and it's called Surfer Boy. <laughs> The songs that Barry wrote were especially for me. Barry played me many songs, which I wasn't really impressed with at the time. So we made another appointment and he came up with Surfer Boy. My first recording by him, I loved it. Even though she liked it, she relegated it to the B-side, to a song called Forgive Me. Um, But it did actually make number 34 in the New South Wales chart. And actually the A-side, Forgive Me, was a Burt Bacharach and Hal David song. Are you familiar with it? No, but I know quite a lot of their songs, really good writers, but I don't recall Forgive Me. I don't know if it's saying much, but I will go as far to say that it's a pleasant song and so far Nolene Bately is my favourite of the artists who have recorded Gibb songs in 63. But I'm, I'm not so keen on the way that Surfer Boy is being performed at such a really high pitch. It's quite a haunting sound, I find. Do you think she was influenced by the... 
Um, Beach Boys. Yeah. And that sort of sound, there was, which was quite popular, sort of 70, no, sorry, 62. We've gone from US. one craze with the stomp to another with surfing. It's like the, the most iconic things about Australian music at the time. So it's no surprise that the Gibbs have... Picked know, up on it, haven't yeah. they? And at around one minute, the verse takes an unusual turn. And this, to me, acts as a reminder that behind this song, there is a competent young songwriter who is trying out different techniques with verse structure. Yeah, well spotted. You say you love me, but you treat me mean. You are the meanest boy I've ever seen. You leave me lonely and you leave me blue. I wish you wouldn't treat me like you do. This is actually the first song that I recall where Barry seems to be writing for a female, you know, for a female's perspective. And it goes to show that even at this early stage, Barry is just as capable for writing for the female voice as he is writing for the male voice. And we'll go on to see in the 1980s and in the late 70s that the songs that he's writing for the female voice go on to be some of his best work that he's ever done. Definitely. Well, I think that, Chris, brings us to the end of the 63 recordings. I've got a few that I've not heard. We did mention The Echo of Love from 1960. There's one in 63 called Breaking Up a Darn Good Thing. Another one called Here She Comes. And the final one I've got is called True True Love. Okay. So nothing at all on those. During 63, though, the Bee Gees did perform quite a lot as backing vocalists, as I said earlier. And you mentioned Johnny Devlin. They also did quite a lot with, with Jimmy Hannon on songs like Beach Ball, You've Gotta Have Love, You Make Me Happy, Hokey Pokey Stomp. There's some rare titles, isn't there? So come on, come on, come on, come on, stomp the tumbarumba. We're from Avalon to Brownie and Marumba too. And in late 1963, the Bee Gees were becoming regulars on television. I'm looking over to Andrew Sandoval's Day by Day storybook, and he's detailing from around August through to December just all the times that they appeared on television on programmes like Bandstand. They were appearing on Australian Women's Weekly. Uh, they were on the Johnny O'Keefe show. So quite a few different appearances. And have you got a list of the sort of songs that we, they were playing? Yeah, well, I've got Sweets For My Sweet, which was a hit in the UK, I think for the searches or something. To Do Ron Ron. And then you've got... Hilly Billy Ding Dong Choo Choo. Mm, no idea on that one. I Want You to Want Me. Blowing in the Wind, Bob Dylan. Please Please Me, Beatles. Little Band of Gold. My Old Man's a Dustman, which was a Lonnie Donegan song in the UK. About 50, don't know, late 50s. Yeah. And then you've got Alexander's Ragtime Band, which I think they did sing in concert in 74. I think that's sort of remained as their most iconic or well-known of the early cover songs that they were doing. And it remained to be quite a comedic moment in the set list. Morris is doing some comic acting in the background, hamming it up. Come round at my house and I'll 
We now reach 1964 and a whole new, very long list of Gibb recordings. I regard 1964 as being the year in which popular music as we know it today was born. And the reason for that is because 64 is the year in which the Beatles, they travel across the Atlantic to America in February and then they go to Australia and pop music around the world changes well, forever. the world then, didn't Just they? changes forever and I truly believe that that was the start of the music landscape that we live in today. And writers become influenced. Then you obviously you had Bob Dylan coming in, so you had that folky element yeah. come in. The British Invasion. Yeah. I've got a few quotations from the brothers talking about the way in which the music landscape of 1964 shaped their music at the time. So Barry says, Cole Joy was always number one. Then all of a sudden, bang. The Beatles started happening. It changed our whole attitude towards show business. Cole fell flat as a tack. Nothing happened to him after the Beatles arrived. Robin goes on to say, Then we started our experimental stage because the Beatles were happening and we thought, let's get some inspiration from this group that are doing so well overseas. It's a British group. We're British, living in Australia. Surely we can do something. So let's experiment. Well, listen to these 64 recordings. You can hear Barry's really growing into the songwriting between 64 and 65 i find he really he really finds his feet builds and develops confidence and you can see we, we start to get some recordings i.e claustrophobia which are so tight so well written so well produced that you th- wow that is such a, an incredible tight compact song that really could have been a really big hit if it wasn't released in australia yeah i think so well Talking of that, Chris, shall we go on to the first song, which I've got is called One Road. And I personally think that so far this is the best song that they've given away. One road to happiness, one road to loneliness, the devil's hand or the promised land, which one will you choose? So be honest with me, how many days did you have this stuck in your head for? Oh, I was telling you, wasn't it, <laughs> on the phone? Well, you mentioned it on the previous podcast, didn't you? Yeah. It obviously, it must have stuck in your mind for you to mention it. And then I was at work and all of a sudden I was humming this song and I'm thinking, oh, crumbs, it, 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 it has, it is a real earworm. You wait till you listen to Jenny Bradley. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> 
Originally, when Barry wrote it, it was as a love song, but then he decided to, to give it a, a religious theme and then to make it sort of a gospel style. If you take the bad road, you will never see the happiness that you would find through all eternity. This one actually um, was the best charting record uh, so far in Barry's career where it reached, it become a top 10 record across the country. Yeah, I can see that. One Road managed number two in the New South Wales chart. I've got two words that I've uh, written for this in my notes. Annoyingly catchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? There's a comedian um, in the UK called Ken Dodd with a song called Happiness. And this song reminds me of that. <laughs> yeah. I think he had the best-selling single of 65. I think it outsold everybody, including the Beatles. I wow. think. Ken Dodd is actually with the Beatles on quite a few of these programmes. Mm. One with the sort of hair looks like he's put his fingers in a plug. I thank the Lord that I've been blessed with more than my share of happiness. And we've also got another song from Jimmy Little, and this is called Walking, Talking, Teardrops. And it was actually written roughly around about the same time, but it wasn't issued until 1967 on an album. Well, since you left me in the cold, I missed the lips that used to say I need those lovers to hold The one that you had pushed away I'm just a walking, talking teardrop And everything I see you through A lonely walking, talking teardrop And I'll never, ever get over Now, which Beatles song, or specifically which Beatles cover, do you think this reminds me of? Now, you're going to ask me to sing this in my head now, aren't you? Is it Ringo Stark naturally? Yeah, yeah. That's it. It's a pleasant lilting tune, but I think it's more of a throwback to Barry's work in 1963, which, you know, it's early 64, so he's still in that 63 mindset. Before we progress any further through 1964, we should go back to January because we've got two copyrights for Barry Gibb compositions. The first is called Boy on the Board and the second Run Right Back. Oh, okay. I did hear that there was a singer called Del Giuliana who recalls recording Boy on a Board. So it was definitely recorded but just never released. Whereas obviously some of these songs I think are just either have been copyrighted or from poem books, I think. So then in February 1964, we get the third BG single. This is Peace of Mind, backed by Don't Say Goodbye. What do you think of Peace of Mind? Well, I think, Chris, on this one, being the first one of 64, vocally, you can hear an improvement. Yep. And they even sort of rock it out on this one as well.
I'll give you Robin's thoughts on it. He says, We went back to the studio to record a follow-up single, Peace of Mind, which didn't give us any when it flopped. (laughs) This is, to me, the first time we get to hear a Beatles style of harmony. And I think the, the twins' vocals are really prominent here. It's probably the first time we can really, really hear Robin and Morris in the background, which is a continuing trend as we progress throughout 1964. With peace of mind, the up-tempo beat, the hand claps and percussion make this a really memorable tune and I think a a very worthy A-side. Yeah. Now on this one as well, I've just mentioned the Beatles, but I think the instrumental reminds me of this. It's got like a a Shadows type instrumental. Like a Stratocaster guitar. Yeah, it's a bit of a Hank Marvin. Yeah. Are you hungry? (laughs) I'm starving. Because I remember you saying to me that the thing that dates songs the most for you is the sound of the guitar. Yeah. Which I always agree with. Even songs from the the early to mid-70s, they might sound very progressive and very contemporary, but the one thing that dates them is always the guitar sound. It's it's weird. Of that of all instruments, it's the thing that really draws a song back to the year in which it was... I mean, even even something like Abbey Road, where it's the the first user's... Is it synthesizer or early synthesizer? And the album does sound a lot more modern than all their other stuff. When you get the guitar break, it still sounds to me quite of its time. Very 69, yeah. yeah. I know we, we, we do keep saying that these songs sound dated or sound off their time. That's not a bad thing. No. If I'm listening to a song from 64, I want it to sound like a song from 64. I mean, it's just the way it is, isn't it? I mean, you get people that talk about Oh, it's got a song from 1984, 84. Oh, that's got the 80s drum beat. That's got an 80s sound to it. Sounds dated. You're going to get the same things in 60 years' time referring to stuff now. Yeah. Should we then go on to the B-side? Don't say goodbye. Please believe me, I will never be untrue. And don't believe the jealous lies they told to you. Oh no, don't go, don't make this poor boy cry. I'll be true, I beg of you, don't say goodbye. Now don't you know? Well, for this one, I've got a definite country vibe. Yes. With this. And this could be probably one of Barry's first. Yeah, I think we can begin to draw a thread from Don't Say Goodbye going into Sweetheart, I'll Kiss Your Memory, etc. Yeah. And I remember when we spoke about Cucumber Castle, we were talking about Don't Forget to Remember. And you, at that point, you said about Don't Say Goodbye. I mean, I think it's got a really good Barry vocal. But I like the harmonies. They're very gentle. And it's got a simple backing. It's a weird thing to say, but this is the definition of B-side. I don't know what it is, but I don't know if you agree with me. Listening yeah. to it, it just sort of sounds like a, a, B-side. Si- a single B-side. But I, I think that the, the lyric, 
Don't Make This Poor Boy Cry is a great example of how beautifully the brothers, their vocals could blend, especially that middle eight, You Just Won't Listen To My Pleas. You can hear Morris really clearly as well. I think this is this is a really strong little song. You just won't listen to my pleas. You want me begging on my knees. So sit right down. Do you have any information on how this A side B side charted? I think it's the same with, with the next four or five singles, I think. Well, I think right up to Spicks and Specks, I don't think we, we get a lot of chart action at all. But it goes back to what we were saying earlier, doesn't it, with the uh, they were perceived at the time. So, And it's quite interesting as well, during February, they actually performed this song live, I think it is live actually, on a, on a Country and Western Hour programme. So it's quite good to see that as well, and you're actually getting the, a, a sort of country traditional backing, sort of banjo, accordion, guitars, bass and stuff and fiddle. You just won't listen to my plea. You want me begging on my Because I saw that the, the percussion for this song described as a coconut drum beat and, and I kind of get that. It's got that slightly relaxed Hawaiian sound to it but on that live television performance the percussion is dialed down and instead we're getting as you said the more country sound put yeah. into it and I noticed like on the video the twins seem to be shooting up a bit so they're, unless they're on boxes of course but they look more like a harmony threesome I'm looking now at the picture at the front of the ultimate biography the three brothers iconic around the microphone we're starting to see that So the Bee Gees performance of Don't Say Goodbye, that was on Reg Lindsay's Country and Western Hour. And then in April of 64, Reg Lindsay does actually do a performance of a Gibb composition, and this is Scared of Losing You. Now, I didn't know too much on this one. I've got a little note from Joseph. He said, Reg Lindsay, a popular country singer, as you, as you said, recorded this track on the April 17th, 1964. But it was six months before it appeared as the B-side. The song also appeared on his LP collection, Encores, in 1968. I used to kiss you so much harder Than all your boyfriends used to do You bet your life upon it That I was scared of gone it Yes, I was scared of losing you see with this one that Barry I think wrote this for Reg Lindsay it wasn't one of the songs that he gave away you know had a bunch of songs and thought he'd give it the way it sounds the country feel the sort of Hawaiian guitar and stuff I think that um, he knew because obviously Reg did the country program it was the sort of style of music that was played in that program so I assume this was the Barry must thought oh this this would suit him yeah 
with a Hawaiian sounding guitar in the background. It's not the sort of music that appeals to me, but the only thing I, I would say going for it, it's got quite a catchy chorus, which Barry seems to come up with. It does remind me a lot of another song from 64 that he wrote called Tribute to an Unknown Love. Oh, right, which we'll come on to shortly. Yeah, they do actually seem like brother and sisters, don't they? Yeah. But you can definitely see that he is clearly interested in country. Yeah. But I must admit, not knowing the Australian scene, I'm quite surprised that he was so influenced by country. I mean, whether whether that was sort of music that was that was going around in Australia, I have no idea. You bet your life upon it, that I was scared gone it. Yes, I was scared of losing you. You bet your life upon it, that I was scared gone it. Yes, I was scared of losing you. In a remarkable March 1964 newspaper interview, Barry said that he had recently completed a classical piano piece called Concerto with No Name, but that he felt he could make more money writing pop songs. Since that article is accompanied by a photo of Barry at the piano, an instrument he never actually learned to play, there's a chance of this title being no more than Gibbs' dry humour. As Josie Brennan said, it's down in the list of Gibbs songs. So we have to cover it. And I think there's another song as well, which is Double Dating. I've got some information on this one. The lyrics for Double Dating were sourced from a scrapbook owned by Dorothy Gilksman, who was one of the Bee Gees' biggest fans during the 1964 period. Now, Barry has neither confirmed or denied whether the lyrics are his own. We've got the lyrics here. They're listed in the Ultimate Biography, so I'll I'll read through them and uh, see what you make of it. Now we are twin brothers, and when things are done, we do them together, we do them as one. But I have a girlfriend... And he has one too, so we go double dating, what else can we do? Chorus. Double dating, there's nothing like this. When you can't help but wink at your twin brother's miss. And when he's not looking, you're stealing a kiss. Double dating, there's nothing like this. Well, it could quite easily be Barry, couldn't it? Yeah. Twins mentioned there. In June 1964, the Bee Gees are at Festival Studios, and we see them recording quite a few different covers. They do The Beatles From Me To You, The Hollies Just One Look, Dave Clark Five's Can't You See That She's Mine, Chad and Jeremy's Yesterday's Gone. These are all included on Brilliant From Birth. Now, there was another song called Abilene, which is by George Hamilton IV. This supposedly circulates. I've not heard it, but it remains unissued. Some of these recordings were actually found by chance in 1983. There was a Sydney resident, according to Decades book, Bill McSorley discovered a batch of canisters containing some oddly labelled records in a garage sale. After doing some local checking, he took them to a renowned rock historian for advice. And then what he'd found were the original acetates of these songs. I assume that what the Bee Gees did, they, they sort of recorded them live, and they, but then mimed them on the TV programme. Yesterday and yesterday's gone. Oh, oh, just one look, and I know. Oh, oh, I'll get you someday. I got arms that long to hold you and keep you by my 
We then have a song copyrighted to March 1964, but then released in June 64 by Del Giuliana, and that's Never Like This. Now, if you've ever wondered what it's like, or what it sounds like, if the singer recorded her song while riding a horse, have a listen to this one. Juliana was a seasoned vocalist who'd worked primarily with Johnny O'Keefe, and she has supported other artists including Chubby Checker, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and Herman's Hermits. Never Like This was produced in Sydney by Johnny Devlin, who was a New Zealand singer-songwriter who we've mentioned before with Let's Stomp Australia Away. On my notes for this one, I've got, to me it sounds like the 60s girl groups that used to get, and they amalgamate with the Beach Boys. And you've got that, obviously, that's still that surf sound as well. Yeah, I've got in my notes an early Beach Boys flavour. Like a lot of Barry's songs from the early 1960s, the focus is that of the yearning for love. Very simple lyrics, very simple stories. But it's innocence as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, and it's just boy loves girl, girl loves boy. Boy falls off the surfboard. <laughs> and then boy stomps Australia away. The Bee Gees remained at festival studios in Sydney, and then in July 1964, they recorded what would become their next single, Claustrophobia, which would be released in August, and it would be coupled with the B-side, Could It Be? Now, this is more like it. This is excellent. This is really, really good stuff. I think straight away, it hits me that the Mersey sound. The sound of 64, very, very catchy, nice and simple, and... I really feel Barry's songwriting has advanced tremendously within six months. I would say that this is definitely the best Gibbs song of 1964. It demonstrates, as you said, their growing confidence. We've got tight harmonies with the twins strengthening Barry's vocals. They're blending almost seamlessly into the background. Morris and Robin are undoubtedly there. And it's that fine-tuned skill that we're really starting to see develop where they can strengthen Barry's vocals, and that's something that will continue throughout the Bee Gees' career. This is the cream of the crop for 64. I've put this in, in my top ten of Aussie recordings already. So this is the, I think this is the first one I would put in that we've come to. I'd like to be the one to see your loving mine at the start But I get claustrophobia Cause there's too many boys in You lead me on 
The decade's 1960s book neatly summarises claustrophobia, describing it as having tight, youthful harmonies that are wonderfully typical of the Bee Gees' Australian era, and, in many ways, claustrophobia remains a fine snapshot of the group's ongoing development. I mean, you usually look into lyrics and stuff. Have you looked at the lyrics of this one? or? Yeah, so in, in the same way that timber, because I'm falling few, so you've got the imagery of timber as the, the tree falling down. With claustrophobia, it's the metaphor of being trapped in a space, in a tightly confined space. I get claustrophobia because there's too many boys on your mind. So it's the protagonist of the song saying, I'm feeling anxious, nervous. I'm feeling under pressure because you've got a lot of other people vying for your attention. So it's it's making me feel claustrophobia. Oh, okay, yeah. So this is the instrumental debut for Robin, who's playing the melodica, and that's the similar sound to the harmonica. And Morris also joins as an instrumentalist here. I'm presuming that he's on rhythm guitars with Barry. In addition to this, the Delawares, a Sydney band, are on backing for claustrophobia. They're filling in for guitar, bass and drums, and Barry would then go on to write two songs for them in 65, Bad Girl and They Say. That's good. I mean, worth being a backing vocalist then, isn't it? So with that, we'll go into the B-side, which is called Could It Be? Look at me. Like the A-side, this one continues in the same Mersey beat sound. I can imagine people like Jerry and the Pacemakers recording this. And this is another one of them songs that I'm surprised didn't get picked up by any of these Mersey groups at the time. Even though it obviously not been a hit in Australia. Yeah. Had it been a hit in Australia, it might have. I think that it sounds like an outtake from the Beatles' first album, Please Please Me. And I'm thinking of their cover, the unused cover, which was to be their, might have been their first single of Mitch Murray's How Do You Do It. Yeah, that's good. Uh, it reminds yeah. me of that. Which I, I really like that Beatles cover of that. I know that... They don't. Do they, they don't. And George Martin wanted it to be... They dismissed it, didn't they? Yeah. They refused to release it or, or sing it, but I think it was George Martin made them. But won't you tell me how do you do it? How do you do what you do to me? I wish I knew. Wish I knew how you do it to me. This might be the first ever instance of my long, long list of Bee Gees misheard lyrics. So the opening line of the verses is, Golly gee, I don't know where I'm going. Which I've always been hearing as analogy, I don't know where I'm going. 
Golly gee, I don't know where I'm going. Analogy. Listen to it. It does sound a lot like analogy, but that's probably just probably just me. Again, strong harmonies from the twins. This is in a similar way to Don't Say Goodbye, a typical B-side. But as you said, it's got the Mersey Beat sound to it. Strong Beatles influence I can hear. And it's a shame that these songs couldn't have been transferred over to the Liverpool scene in 1964 because they would have been good crowd pleasers. Well, I think, I think they're a strong pair of songs. In September 64, Music Maker profiles the trio. At their present home in a suburb of Sydney, they have a studio under the house and it's there that they practice and compose songs. For hobbies, the boys go swimming, play football, collect records and perhaps the most unusual of all is their special pastime of making 8mm goon-type movies, which they still do. Well, they still do the goons in their songwriting, I think we discussed in 67, and a couple of the songs that got released, the unreleased songs that got put out. This magazine further notes that the Bee Gees' main ambition is to last in popularity as long as the Mills Brothers and to tour the US. Also in September, Barry Copper writes a few new compositions, I'll Be There, My Girl, Now Comes the Pain, and When a Girl Cries. But unfortunately, recordings of these songs are yet to surface. There is someone walking behind you. Turn around, look at me. There is someone watching your footsteps. Turn around, look at me. There is someone. Says he loves you Here's my The mild performance of the Bee Gees' first four singles resulted in their fifth single to be non-Gib compositions, and instead for the A-side they do Jerry Capehart's Turn Around Look At Me, and this single, recorded around September at Festival Studios, was released in October. But this single is interesting because instead of being titled as the Bee Gees, it was titled as Barry Gibb and the Bee Gees which I think was a really strange move for late 64, because in early 64, that makes sense. Or in 63, that makes sense, because you get a lot of acts at the time like um, Lonnie Lee and the Lee Men, or Jerry and the Pacemakers. But the Beatles had come over to Australia and America and proved that for naming a band, you don't need so-and-so and and the so-and-sos. You can just have the Beatles or the Bee Gees. So it seems to me like a step back to then go to Barry Gibb and And the the Bee Gees. Because Barry was his voice was fully matured as opposed to the twins whose probably voice hadn't quite broken, they were seeing him as the the star and wondering whether the twins would ever were just there to back him up and whether they once their voices broke, whether they had the voices to carry on. But obviously it was a safe bet with Barry, wasn't it? Because he was already writing this huge amount of material. He was the main vocalist. 
So I can understand why they wanted to promote Barry. As you say, in, in the UK, you had um, Jerry and the Pacemakers. There was also something called Freddie and the Dreamers. And uh, have you heard that the Beatles one? Was it Long John Silver and the Silver... It was, was it Long John Silver and the Beatles? Something like that, yeah. It was Barry Gibb. I think he says it in that Clive Anderson interview. It was the Bee Gees at one point. It was, was, it, was it Wee Johnny Hayes and the Blue Cats? That's it. That's it. Yeah, I think that that was the reasoning behind behind that. It's just they wanted to focus quite a bit on Barry. But because he was so prolific, it is quite a, a strange decision for festival to, for him to do cover versions. Mm-hmm. When they were already doing cover versions on their TV shows. So why didn't they pick one of them where they'd got TV exposure that they could have done? Are you familiar with Turn Around Look At Me? Not, not until I heard their version. But I think it was... Um, I have since heard... I think Glenn Campbell, I think, did Turn Around Look At Me as well. I'm not sure. First time I heard it, there was a, um, in 1978, Radio 1 did a six-part, I think it was a six-part special on the Bee Gees, obviously, around the time of, it might have been promoting, I don't know, actually, 78, 79, it might have been... Spirits. Yeah, it could have been. I taped all the songs off it, because there were songs I didn't know, but every time they spoke, I turned my tape off. (laughs) And now I've looked on the internet, and I cannot find it anywhere. But it it was a really good series. Where they started off right at the very bottom and went through all these. And I think this is one of the songs they played that's on my tape. It's a good song, actually. It is. And I think that to the untrained ear at the time, they might not have known that it wasn't a Gibb composition if they weren't looking at the, the credits of the song. And I think it fits Barry's vocal as well. Yeah. And the B-side to turn around look at me was the theme from the travels of Jamie McFeeters. was i think i've read it was an american tv show so it's quite interesting that these two songs then they're, they're not looking to the uk they've they look to the us yeah because the jamie mcfeeters theme was also recorded by the osmonds oh yeah and obviously they became huge in the early 70s in the uk as well did you pay much attention to them never even heard of them till i think they had a couple of minor hits 70 71 one bad apple i think but it was it was donny osmond's puppy love that was really big in 72 and the rest of the family then sort of come. And then we had we had to have that torturous Jimmy Osmond with his long-haired lover from Liverpool. <laughs> well, after doing two cover versions, the next one we come to is October 64. And we've got a singer by the name of Bryn Davis, who covers three of Barry's songs. And the first one we've got is an A and a B side. The first side is called I Just Don't Like To Be Alone. And the B side is called Love and Money. When I see you out of sight
Bryn Davis, like the Bee Gees, is from Manchester. He's two years older than um, than Barry. Barry gives him a couple of couple of singles, and actually, it did reach the lower parts of the charts. It did get to number twenty two in New South Wales. We'll start with "I Just Don't Want to Be Alone." I can hear a mild John Lennon intonation from Davis on this one. Fairly conventional song, typical of the time. Yeah, I, I don't mind it. It's I can see improvement in Barry's writing from '63. But I don't think this is anywhere near the best of what he was composing in 64. It sounds like something you'd probably hear in the cavern. Yeah. You know, it's upbeat, there's good vocals. And I think it's got a slightly more tougher sound than what the Bee Gees were producing at the time. Hence why I think it might, well, as I say, got to to lower reaches in number 22, so... Do you think that that toughness comes through purely from Davis' vocal performance? Or do you think that had the Bee Gees have performed it, it would have been there? I think it's because Bryn Davis performed it. I, I think at the time, is it something, toughness, that they were wanting from the Bee Gees? I don't know if they saw them as more tougher or more harmonies. And, and going through these songs, it, it seems to me that, that they seem more country than anything. Though obviously we got with the previous, not the last single, the previous single, Claustrophobia, we were getting, um, well, I think the 64 sound. I don't want your silver castle She just don't mean nothing. Cause I won't live for love or money. Make me a slave to none. I won't live for love or money. Give me them as they come. Give me them as they come. Well, I think like the A-side, this is also fairly commercial. Again... You tend to be repeating yourself, but it's got quite a, a Mersey Beat production. Probably slightly more stripped back than the A-side. Quite rougher vocals on this one. But yeah, I, I mean, Barry is certainly giving people decent songs to um, to sing. They're not, you know, you wouldn't put them down as, oh, this is rubbish, I can see why I give it away. Yeah. You know, they are, they are good, constructive pop songs. I'd put this as saying this is better than its A-side. The song has an interesting build with chugging guitars and then we get the bass introduced and then the vocals and the percussion. And I can definitely hear in the way that Davies has the descending tonight, I can hear sort of a Roy Orbison inflection there. With these songs that Barry gives away and you you go on about this, they do have a very, sound like a band. Whereas obviously the songs the Bee Gees are singing sound like the three of them, more of a vocal group. These songs have have quite a band feel to them, don't they? But I can definitely hear the brothers in Love and Money, not as I can hear them in the recording, but I can imagine them singing this one more than I Don't Like to Be Alone. Well, according to Joseph's notes, Brian remembers it as Barry was present at the sessions, or the sessions, and may have sung back up, but I've listened to it and I can't. I can't hear no trace of him at all. And did the percussive chugging at the beginning of the song remind you of anything? Oh, you're you're good at this, aren't you? Um, no, go and tell. What, what do you think? 1975. They're not going over the bridge again, are they? They might be. It <laughs> sounds like it. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah good spot. There could be. <laughs> A 
and the third of these Brian Davis songs was an actually another A-side, and it's called Watch What You Say, but uh, obviously written in 64, but this was actually released in February 1965. Watch what you say to that girl. two minutes this is a neat little slice of mid-60s pop i think complete with that twangy stratocaster guitar that we mentioned before but do you think all these tracks that um that they've given to brian they could have all gone on with the beatles which is their second album in the uk they're all of a john lennon flavor all innocent aren't they yeah the end of side two is it money that's what i want and devil in her heart not a second time while I was doing my research, I could see that With The Beatles was a favourite album of Morris's. He says, the With The Beatles cover blew me away totally. This is what I would like to be like. The black polo necks, the half-shadowed faces, the moodiness, the mysteriousness, touchable but untouchable, and Paul was my mentor. His bass playing was amazing, and every single Beatles record, even now, I can play every bass line that Paul played and that's how I learned bass from the Beatles records. We modelled ourselves on them. A lot of kids did. A lot of groups did in those days. I mean, that is a classic cover, isn't it, that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. That sort of black and white moody photo of the four of them. Which the Bee Gees kind of replicate in 1989 with one. Yes, they do. Black and white, yeah. half-shadowed faces. During October and November, there's quite a lot of Barry songs that were copyrighted. Apart from the ones that we, we're mentioning, there's others called I'm in the Middle of a Dream, Leave the Loving to the Boy, Since I Lost You, and This is the End. They were copyrighted in October, obviously, like many other songs, never to be heard again. And then in November, you've got Boy with a Broken Heart, Hey Jenny, Mr Modman, my baby can, the one that I love, and you were made in brackets for me. So, you know, that's, that's sort of eight, nine songs, isn't it? That Apart from all these that we're going through. So it was a good, prolific year for Barry. So after all those titles, we then come to another song that Barry gave away. And this is called Tribute to an Unknown Love, given to Johnny Hoare, but wasn't actually released on his, until his album in 1966. <laughs> other girls have done she'll be true in every way and she won't kiss and run and just to feel her lips so close to me her eyes so heavenly gaze into mine to think that I will have a girl and until that happy day a tribute to an unknown love is all that I can pay 
John Hoare, who was also known by his stage name as John Grenell, was a prolific country singer and songwriter from New Zealand, and as you said, Tribute to an Unknown Love appeared on his 1966 LP, Hit the Trail. What do you make of this one? It's not dissimilar to a couple of songs that we've mentioned, Scared of Losing You. In my notes, I've just written Chirpy with a lot of whistling. I did read that um, he met the Gibbs in 1964, and Barry actually gave him four songs of, of This Is The One That He Preferred. It's pleasant enough. Again, as I say, it's the same vein to quite a few of these other ones. I walk with my head held high And no one will know it's shy I'm the boy who lost you I'll never see those angel eyes You're just a devil in disguise I'll hide it so The next track that we have is They'll Never Know, performed by Wayne Newton. Around this time, obviously Barry being quite a prolific songwriter, his publisher, Belinda Music Limited, were trying to push his songs into the USA. As a result of that, Tony Brady contacted Wayne Newton while he was on tour in Australia in 64 and offered him some of Barry's compositions. Hence why this was 64. But it was actually put onto his album in 1965, in April called Red Roses for a Blue Lady. Now, I quite like this, actually. What it reminds me of, this would have been perfect, I think, for somebody like Cilla Black, um, obviously with a tweak in the lyrics. But I think it's like a, a distant cousin for It's For You. It's that sort of laid-back, jazzy type of feel to it. But quite interesting about this song, this was the first recording of a Barry Gibb composition to be released in the US. And the album that it's from actually peaked at number 17 on the Billboard Top 100. It's for you. Okay, Chris, so now we come to the last of the 64 recordings that we've got. This was, again, a Barry song that was given to Trevor Gordon. The A-side is called House Without Windows. The B-side is And I'll Be Happy. But quite interestingly, this one is listed as Trevor Gordon and the Bee Gees. So I've seen some, some places where this is classed as the Bee Gees' sixth single. Right, okay. I don't because I class the Bee Gees as solo, just the Bee Gees. Yeah, but they would go on to have later association with Trevor Gordon. Oh yeah, because he was in the in the Mar. I think we discussed it in '68. Was he in the Marbles? Yep. Along with uh, um, Graham Bonnet. The single "House of That Windows," backed with "And I'll Be Happy," was released on the 18th of January 1965. And like Del Giuliana, Trevor Gordon worked as a backing singer on Johnny O'Keefe's TV show. And then Gordon would also then, the following year, in 65, he would go on to play lead guitar on several songs that feature on the Bee Gees' first album, Sing and Play. Yeah, because actually he was born in Skegness, so that's not uh, too far from us, is it? No, it's not. 
So you said about the title, Trevor Gordon and the Bee Gees, having the brothers on this song immediately lifts it for me. I think it's lifted by their backing vocals and harmonies. This is one where I think it's just a shame that we've not got Barry on lead vocal. I don't think that Gordon's vocals are the most distinctive or remarkable. And I think that then shows in the marbles because he wasn't really on lead vocals with them. No, he wasn't. No. And I think that's why he ended up being dissatisfied with that project, because he was sort of just relegated to rhythm guitar and instruments. The, the good thing is you, you can actually hear the brothers harmonising on this one. Yeah. I am such a lonely boy Looking for someone to love Someone to love, I'll be happy. You are such a lovely girl, looking for a lonely boy. So won't you fill this heart with joy, and I'll be happy too. I'd like to give my heart a chance for romance for two. The flip side of the single, And I'll Be Happy, is a song that I really like. It's one of my favourites from 64. Do you know why that is? Well, I've got in my notes that I found that it had a bit of a Mediterranean Latin flavour, reminiscent of the Beatles' And I Love Her. It's got a bit of that Paul McCartney thing to it. And he he often revisits that. You get songs like Distractions, uh, A Certain Softness. And I can hear that in And I'll Be Happy. I I quite like this one. Well, I've got on my notes as well that it, it reminded me, particularly with, with the backing vocals, of Do You Want to Know a Secret? Yeah. I think this is a really strong B-side, which, whilst I couldn't see it as being the A-side, I think is certainly stronger than the track that it's coupled with. And I will say that this is one of the very early examples of the pretty Barry acoustic songs that we always mention. Yeah. We get our first appearance, full appearance of it here. In the Ultimate Biography... And I'll Be Happy is described as a curious but interesting Barry Gibb song. It sounds very much like a Cliff Richard type ballad of the late 50s. Oh, okay. I'll be happy too. And I'll be happy too. House Without Windows and And I'll Be Happy were recorded December 1964, so we round off the year. And also we'll round off this first part of our journey through the Australian material. We had an email in from Mark Austin who says, This period was obviously their formative period as songwriters and features much pastiche as they gradually developed their own style. Nevertheless, there were some incredibly strong pop songs, most of which did not trouble the charts in Australia. My own favourites from this period are... Claustrophobia, which is he believes to be the standout track, just like us. Yeah. And uh, he says that this is a clever, quirky lyric and surprised that this did not have more chart impact for the Bee Gees. Yeah, I was. It was also backed by the Beatlesque Could It Be, which stands in its own right as a strong pop song for the era. Yep, I agree with that. Mark then says that Take Hold of That Star has a great vocal and harmonies in the 50s uh, influenced ballad. This is a strong song for so early in their career. The brothers were fans of the Mills Brothers, and this sounds reminiscent of their work. And then Three Kisses of Love, this is more commercial than the A-side, and again features great harmonies. The Bee Gees seem to reference threes regularly in this period, 
One, two, three also appears in claustrophobia. I'd, I'd not considered that. And Mark wonders if Three Steps to Heaven, Eddie Cochran, maybe influenced the lyrics. Mm, interesting. And then on Don't Say Goodbye, Mark says, The clip-clop of hooves on this track signals one of their first forays into country music. The vocals have a strong Everly Brothers feel, which is not surprising for the time it was released. And then on Turn Around Look At Me, he says this is one of the very few covers from this period. He then concludes saying... There are some great tracks from 65 onwards, so plenty of Australian material for you to cover in the next few months. Well, there's lots of it, isn't there? Lots and lots and lots. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of part one, how are you feeling so far about this Australian music? When we started it with 1958, well, 59, 60, there were, they were just three children, weren't they, that, that were influenced by what was going on in the 50s. Here we come to the end of 64, and you've got two teenagers... What was Barry? 64, he was... 17. 17, 17, 18, yeah, something like that. And you can already hear the maturity in the way the songs are developed. You can hear the different styles that Barry was using. And he he was quite well equipped to mould his songs around what was current at the time. Yeah. And I think you'll probably find with 65 and thereafter, you'll probably find 66, I think they probably started to find a style of their own. Because I think the music in 66 was becoming more diverse. In part two, we'll be going through the entirety of 1965, which includes the Bee Gees' first ever studio album, or compilation. I think it's more of a compilation with with a few uh, recent numbers thrown together. Yeah. I'm surprised about the amount of TV footage that survives, particularly that clip of 60, and then you've got 63, 64, where they're covering all these cover songs and things. Just remarkable that, you know, because they wasn't even well known. You know, they were not having chart stuff in Australia, were they? But it all survives. Yeah, you, you try and find the, the Beatles on top of the pops and they've all been wiped. Yeah, I'm missing 97 episodes of Doctor Who. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot missing. But thankfully, as you said, we, we've got plenty of these performances that we can revisit, rewatch. And they're just a perfect little time capsule of the year that they were released, 63, 64. And could you name any other artist who started their career doing comedy sketches, writing songs of their own, giving songs to other artists, becoming prolific songwriters, all of this happening before they even hit 20 years old? It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, really is. The next year, you'll find 65, the, the twins start to evolve. They start getting a few solo parts in records, don't yep. they? Yeah. So I'll say with that, we will... Uh, um... Leave you with a preview for 1965. I'm so weary from holding this load, but it's only love for you that I walk this lonely road. I must follow the wind, follow the wind, and the wind will take me home before the cold. Every star I have counted, each flower I have seen. But the place I am going, there's no grass as green. I must follow the wind, follow the wind, and the wind will take me home where I can dream. In the hour I am lonely, your love will be mine. I will stay in your arms, dear, until comes the time. Thank you for listening to Words the Bee Gees podcast. 
presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepson. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Words Beaches Podcast and on Twitter at Words Beaches Pod. Or, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at wordsbeachespodcast at gmail.com. I think this well, actually... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Follow the wind. Yeah. <laughs>